Good morning, everybody. How you doing today? Come on, wave at me. Everybody over the Ducks loss today. Are you? Sorry, I know I have to always put the pain in. I'm feeling it with you. I was there on the 10th row in the end zone, and we did our best to cause disruption as the loyal fans at Autzen. But uh, nonetheless, nonetheless. Well, hey, it's an awesome day to be at church together. Thank you for being here. So excited uh, for, for you to be here today. I'm excited to be here today. I'm so enjoying the series that we're taking part in right now called You Can't Say That in Church. Somebody say, you can't say that. You can't say that. Uh, And what we're doing in this series, if you haven't been a part so far, I encourage you to go back on the website, check out where we've gone from this point. But what we're doing in this series is we're tackling some of the tough questions and tough objections to the Christian faith and giving honest answers, giving concrete answers. And if you've ever been felt stifled or shut down uh, in church, maybe you had a question a deep question about something that really was meaningful, and you're like, what's up with this? You know what I'm saying? Uh, well, where's God and when, it's, when I'm suffering, and what about hell, and what's the deal with the Bible, and isn't it this ancient book of irrelevant myths, and all this kind of stuff? Maybe you have these kind of questions. Well, that's the point of this series, is we're not going to shut those things down. In fact, we're inviting everybody to bring their questions, bring their skepticism, bring their doubt, because we believe, I believe, that uh, truth is not intimidated by questions, Right? If something is true, then it's true regardless of the questions you ask, right? So what we're asking everybody to do, whether you're a skeptic or a believer, is to turn over all the rocks, open all the doors, and lean into the doubts and the questions that you have, believing that God is going to reveal himself to you. If there is a God, he's there. And and when you open up those things and look in science and logic and reason and so on and so forth, he's going to be there, right? Waiting for you. And you're going to open the cupboard and go, boo! It's exactly how it works. Exactly how it works. Totally theological description of salvation. Am I right? Okay. But we are not intimidated by questions. And, and here's the thing, a little disclaimer. Every uh, week we're giving a talk, about a 30-minute talk, 35, maybe a little longer, first service. I won't do that to you. Uh, but uh, that's in the past, right? It's, it's forgiven, my <laughs> egregious overtime uh, thing last <laughs> first service. But uh, I'm sorry, I lost track of my thought. All right, it's great. Okay, yeah, you can't give it all. You can't give the whole answer. You can't explore every avenue or, or go as deep as you want in a 30-minute talk. So what we're doing is we have two avenues available. Number one, uh, on our page, joyeugene.com, there's a resource tab. We're giving resources that will give more background and deeper answers to the, the talks we're giving on Sundays. And then the second thing is we have an email address. It's the future. And it's called can't say that at joyeugene.com. Can't say that at joyeugene.com. And the point of that is that if you have any questions, maybe from a message that comes out today or any question at all, uh, we're doing a weekly podcast and you can send that question to can't say that at joyeugene.com and we will do our best to answer that during the weekly podcast. So our one this week was kind of late because we were at a conference that came out yesterday, but we'll try to get that put out uh, in the week. And we answered some great questions over the last two weeks. So go back and check that out. So that's what we're doing. You excited to be here today with me? Yeah. Well, today we're going to kind of shake things up. Um, For many of you, as you know, last week on Sunday, there was a a horrible shooting in Las Vegas. How many of you heard this on the news and and saw what's going on? And we were going to do this message on evil and suffering and where's God in the evil and the suffering and and what's God's answer to the problem of evil and suffering. We were going to do that in a couple of weeks, but we made the decision based on what happened in Las Vegas that we felt like today was the perfect day to answer this question and to deal with this. Um, 
I, I, for me, I don't know what, what kind of what your experience was, but Sunday night I was going to sleep and a friend of mine that lives in Las Vegas said something about a shooter. And so I sort of said a prayer and I just kind of, it wasn't a big deal. It didn't seem like it, you know, it was kind of like, that's too bad. That's sad. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Woke up Monday morning, opened up my phone, look at the news and see this absolutely atrocious, horrendous act of evil. And I just felt physically sick. I don't know about, about you guys, but looking into that, and I, and, and I felt like, man, as we look at this together as a society, as a culture, as a church, looking into the face of horrendous evil, what better time than to say, here's God's heart for, for, for the problem of evil. Here's God's heart for people that suffer uh, because it's all over our world. Our world is, is sick, isn't it? Uh, there's a lot of brokenness and problems, and those problems are not just involved in acts of violence like what happened in Las Vegas, but they're all throughout society. There's oppression, there's violence, there's racism, there's brokenness, there's evil. But an event like that kind of gives us a, a platform to come at it and look at it and say, look, we're all seeing this event. We're all experiencing this brokenness. Let's see what, what does God have to say about this. And so that's what we're gonna do today. You know, I felt like that event that took place in Las Vegas, it gave us a clear picture of horrendous evil. Um, and I don't know about you, but I could just feel it in my bones. I mean, I just almost, again, it was physically sick. Bethany came in and I'm like, babe, do you know what's happening? There's this shooting in Las Vegas. I think at last count, this man murdered 59 people, 58, 59 people, uh, 500 wounded. It's disgusting. It's contemptible. It's wrong. Come on. If you, if you look at this and you have another perspective of, of that, other than that it's disgusting and contemptible and wrong, um, let's have a conversation. You know, I think when we look at this, it's pretty easy to see that that is messed up, right? It's easy to see that's messed up. It's not a philosophical question. Is that wrong? Let's talk about it philosophically. No, we know it is. We intuitively know. We, when, when an evil event like that takes place, and somebody does something really horrendously wrong, it's like this note gets sounded and it, and it resonates us wrong. Everything inside of us goes sideways. We know, ugh, that's not how it's supposed to be. Come on. It's like last night at the game, we were sitting there and Bethany goes, something bad is happening because both bands were playing at the same time. It was like, and it was the Cougars' fault, let's just be honest. But their band is playing, our band is playing, and you hear that and you go, this is discordant, this is not harmonious, it's horrible. And in the same way, when we encounter evil, in the world, it resonates with us a wrong way. We go, ugh, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how it's supposed to sound. It's not how it's supposed to feel. And as we look into evil, both in this event, but in all of life and all the scope of human existence, as we examine evil, we have to ask this question, and it's a good question. Where is God? Come on. Have you ever asked this question? Where's God in this? Because from the Christian faith, from our perspective of God, we believe in a good God a God of love, a God of hope, a God of beauty. And so the question comes, why would God allow this to happen? If God is good and God is powerful and God is beautiful and God is ho there's ho brings hope and healing, why does he let this kind of stuff happen? And why does he ever permit evil at all in the universe, in the world? And for many people, this isn't just a question that kind of causes them pain. It's a question that actually is a barrier to faith in God. See, for a lot of people, they say, look, in light of all this garbage that takes place in the universe. How could I believe in a good God, a God of love, a God of truth, of hope and beauty? How could I believe in that God in the face of what's me so a messed up universe? And you know, we've gone in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at God's existence through the lens of logic. 
We asked the question, is faith blind? And we talked about how the Christian faith is rooted in evidence and it's rooted in logic. Last week, we asked the question, are faith in God, are, 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 uh, I'm sorry, are science and faith incompatible? And we looked at God's existence through the lens of science and logic. And those are great messages, great concepts. But today it gets personal. Today we're going to look at even a deeper question. Last week I said that science can solve puzzles, but it cannot unravel mysteries. And for us and for every human being, the problem of evil, even calling it a problem, but the problem of evil is a mystery. And science doesn't have an answer for that because science can tell us how, but it can't tell us why. Isn't it interesting that as we examine this event that took place in Las Vegas, the question that is burning in our hearts is not what happened, it's why. We know what happened. Somebody shot people. We know what it feels like. We know how it makes us feel, but we don't know why. And so they're asking, what's his motivation? They're pulling, pulling it apart, trying to figure out why did this happen? Why, 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 why? The why question is the question of the heart. And that's where the Christian faith speaks beyond even the level of science. Again, it's not antithetical to science. Being a Christian, being a person who believes in God is actually not an unscientific perspective. It simply understands as a follower of Christ, we understand that science can tell us how, but it can't tell us why. Therefore, it gives us an incomplete picture of the universe that we call home. And so we have to find a full holistic worldview that gives us answers all the way around. And today we're going to lean in and look into the Christian faith and see where it gives us unique answers to the deep questions of the heart and gives us answer to the why. Now, if you're taking notes and you want to get the whole message in one sentence, here it is. I believe that the Christian faith holds both the answer and the, antidote, and, and the antidote for the problem of evil. The Christian faith is an answer for the problem of evil, and it's also an antidote to the problem of evil. And that's what I want to share with you today. But I want to start by questioning the question. You know, as we examine this event, and we look at what happened in Las Vegas, and I ask you the question, how did that make you feel, and was this evil? We have to ask ourselves, was what happened in Las Vegas an act of evil? And I want you to think about that question for a second. It's not an accident, okay? It didn't just happen. How many of you think that that was like an accident? Oops, I accidentally shot people. No. Was it just a, a, a matter of perspective? No. So if you come to this place where you say, look, that was an act of evil, I want to ask you this question. How do you know that? Why is it that the, your, your moral tuning fork, when that note of evil sounds, that it goes discordant and it doesn't resonate? Why? Where does that come from? Where do we get this idea of right and wrong? Where do we get this idea of good and evil? Where do we get this idea intellectually, but also why do we intuitively feel and know it? Where does that come from? It's not a matter of preference. We don't simply prefer that that shooting didn't happen. It wasn't like, well, you know, that happened. I wish, you know, something else happened. Yeah, we do prefer that, but that's not it. It doesn't really quite fit, does it? It's not a matter of disagreement. Oh, we disagree, so this happened. No, it's not that. There's something that was really and truly wrong. Come on. Something really and truly wrong. But if we can perceive this, if we can feel this, if we can intuit it, something that perceives something to be dark or evil, it's only because there is in the universe something that is light or something that is good. I love this phrase, the shadow proves the sunshine. 
The shadow proves the sunshine. The fact that we see this shadow proves that there's a light coming from beyond that casts this shadow. If there's moral laws, if there are moral, if there's moral absolutes and some things are just objectively wrong and some are right, if there's a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. Now, this is a concept that everybody is totally comfortable with when it comes to horrendous acts of violence. Let me tell you how many relativists there are the day after the shooting. Zero. Nobody, because I mean, I'll talk about this here. Nobody's a relativist when it comes to the Holocaust. Nobody says, ah, there's no objective moral standards. Well, then why don't you come down here and tell me and, and tell all of us from your perspective here how we can say that what Hitler did to six million Jewish people was just a matter of subjective opinion or preference. Uh, if you want to come down here and be a relativist and say, look, there's no moral absolutes, well, then what Stephen Paddock did was a, just a preference type of a thing. Actually, in an atheistic universe, he was just a, a better predator than you and me and those people at the concert. So who wants to come down here and argue that today? Come on. No, no takers? You're like, no, you're scary. You look like a bear. Okay, I understand. <laughs> I, I don't bite. I don't bite hard. I don't bite much. Okay. But, but actually, I think we all get this, that no, nobody's a relativist. Nobody's like, ah, there's no moral laws. It just works that way when it's about you and like what you want to do with your body and what you want to smoke and what you want to drink. And then it gets really loosey-goosey. Oh, there's no moral absolutes. Dude, that's your truth. This is my truth, brah. <laughs> Except for when somebody gets their brains blown out. Why is the problem of evil a problem at all? Because there's right and wrong and some things are right and good and pure and other things are garbage. But we have to face up to this and say, where do I get this idea? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about this. He was a skeptic, an atheist that was leaning into these questions and he said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. We've asked this question, right? It's why is it broken? But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? And what he's saying is when you feel evil, when you experience evil, if that was just a part of this naturalistic, physical, material universe, and that's all there was, and there was nothing from outside that was casting light into this universe, you wouldn't even be aware that something was wrong. And we'll talk about this more. A man feels wet when he falls into water. Because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. I love that. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning, just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. The existence of a moral standard that we intuitively understand. You can't say it doesn't exist. It does exist. The existence of that standard, of that law, points to a moral law giver. 
It's not a matter of preference or perspective. You can see why these kinds of acts of evil, they, they, they make us ask tough questions of ourselves and face up and say, what worldview gives the best explanation for, for this in the universe? How can I stand and say that was wrong and then on the other hand say, well, there is no God? It's a problematic position and we'll lean into this. For many people that have said evil invalidates God's existence, I want to offer this simple argument. To say that you don't believe in God because of evil is the same as saying, I don't believe in your imaginary friend because he's a liar. <laughs> we'll just let that sink in for a second. Ooh, that's nonsense. Why is it nonsense? Well, to be immoral, you have to exist. To be moral, you have to exist. To be immoral, you have to exist. Your behavior is based on your actual existence, right? We don't, we don't like get offended by the behavior of the Easter Bunny. He's dropping eggs everywhere. <laughs> we don't think he exists. So a person that says, I'm going to disbelieve in God because of a perception of morality is missing something really, really important, which is if he doesn't exist, you can't judge his morals. So God's existence is a precondition of judging the good or the bad or the existence of evil, so on or so, so forth. So God has to exist in a universe in which we hold God accountable for this problem. And I wanted to establish that because I think for many people, that's a critical thing to, to, to process. Because as we talk about the problem of evil, what comes uh, as we move forward is that there's actually an accusation against God, which is what we feel when we say, where's God? There's an assumption that we're bringing to the table that says, if he's good and if he's powerful, then it's his job to do something about this screwed up mess, yeah. right? So if God does not exist, that question is, in, is, is invalid. But if he does exist, then it's a valid question, okay? Let's move forward. So let's go, let's go here next. There are three issues to deal with today as we talk about the problem of evil. Three specific contexts for evil and how we observe it. Number one is the logical problem of evil. This is the problem of the head. It's the problem of our thinking and our, the logical construct of evil. And we'll talk about that. The second one is the emotional problem of evil. It's the problem of the heart. It's the problem of how we feel, how we live and per, uh, handle evil and suffering in the universe. And the third problem is the personal problem of evil which is the problem of the hands. It's the head, the heart, the hands, how we live, what, how are we going to act in light of this and, and move forward from this. So we're going to cover these three today, uh, and then we'll, we'll conclude and go eat something delicious. Amen. That's what church is all about. It's like get a message, get some good food, take a nap. Yeah, I think that's in the, the first book of Hesitations, 4-3. Okay. If you are not a... If you're like a skeptic and you're here and you're like learning stuff, that was a stupid Christian joke. That's why a bunch of Christians laughed at it. Okay, I'm just kidding. The logical problem of evil, problem of the head. See, this has been a problem for, for centuries, generations, even before Christianity was uh, uh, you know, a coherent faith presented in the marketplace of ideas, even in the ancient world, before Jesus ever came or anything, people looked at the existence of evil and realized that it created a logical problem uh, for a particular construct of God. Um, and, and this is an interesting thing because Christians say, and I think we need to be, be clear about this, that Christian faith, we believe in a good God, we believe in an all-powerful God, and we believe in a God that cares and loves the world and wants to make things right. I mean, would you say that's kind of basically 
a good idea about God. So Greek philosopher Epicurus, he said this, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Uh, malevolent. That's a hard word to say. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So basically the argument goes like this. God can't be all powerful and all good and all knowing in light of the existence of evil. Therefore, if evil exists, if evil stuff happens, then we have to throw out one of these ideas about God. Either God isn't all good or God isn't all powerful, but he can't be both and have evil exist in the world. Now you might be like, that's a stupid question. No, it's not a stupid question. It's actually a great question. It's a really good question. It's a logical problem because it seems as if on the surface that, yeah, if God is all good and he's all powerful, then bad garbage wouldn't happen. Kids wouldn't get hurt. People wouldn't get murdered. You wouldn't get cancer. There wouldn't be hurricanes. Come, come on, somebody. Like if, if God is all powerful and all good, why doesn't he just immediately intervene and stop all the garbage? And I think it's a great question, but there's also a great answer. You see, Philosophers and scholars have studied this question and, and come at it from all sides, atheist, uh, different religions, Christian, all kinds of theists, deists, all kinds of different people have circled around all of the king's men, all the horses and men tried to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. They've all circled around this question and asked it. And what has come out is this idea that all hinges on this one word. It's called uh, free will. Might be two words, actually. I'm not a mathematician, so I've told you this many times. Free will. The defense to the logical problem of evil, it's called a theodicy if you're interested in the geeky name for it, but the defense for, for this logical problem of evil is found in this idea of free will, which basically goes like this, that God, his intrinsic nature is love. The scripture says this about the Christian God, that God is love. It's his intrinsic nature and love necessitates choice. That it's not love, if I put a gun to someone's head and say, you have to marry me, Bethany, you have to marry me or I will kill you. And she's like, ah, I'm feeling the vibe. I think I'm in, I'm in. That's not love. My brother, Johnny, who's weird and crazy, he has a poem that goes like this. Roses are red, violets are blue. I have a gun, get in the van. <laughs> ah, romance. Ah, young love. No, love necessitates choice. You cannot have love and coercion in the same sentence. We call that rape. Come on. Love is about choice. Therefore, if God's aim, see, I think we get this wrong. If we think that God's aim in creating the universe was for everybody to be always exactly happy and perfectly comfortable all the time, we've missed something. Because it never says in scripture anything that God's, I created you so that you would always have high-speed internet, and Netflix would always have a new show for you to watch at all times. That's just not a Christian idea. It's not even an idea really for anybody. God wasn't making the universe, uh, desiring that every one of us would be perfectly content, happy, and comfortable at all times. He made you and I for relationship. So God created what is known as significantly free beings, and he gave you life force when God breathed into Adam, he took, made him out of the dirt and breathed into him his spirit, a life-giving spirit. He gave Adam existence apart from himself. Okay, you're following with me here? 
for the purpose of relationship that a, that a being that God didn't, wasn't in control of in all ways could, could make a free choice to accept and love God. God, out of his intrinsic nature, was expanding of himself, even out of the Trinity, not because he was lonely, but because he's loving his intrinsic nature. So he's exuding this and he creates the universe and creates people that can come into relationship with him and love him and worship him and know him and experience the heights and the greatest purpose of existence, literally what we were made for. Okay, you with me? But if God wants that, he has to also make that person able to say, God, I don't want you. Otherwise, it's not love. Now, I know this is kind of heavy. I know it's kind of deep, but think about this. It's not love without a choice. So God gave his creation a choice. When he created Adam and Eve, they had a choice. They rejected God. And evil is the result of the rejection of God. And some people, you know, you can say, well, that means God created evil. No, it doesn't mean that. Evil is a privation of good. I want you to think about evil. Evil is never creative. It's always a pollution or a perversion of something good. Lust is a perversion and a pollution of love. Greed is a pollution and a perversion of prosperity. Come on. I mean, you can just go down the line. There's all the, the, evil's always a privation. It's always, it's always taking something that started off good and bringing it down. It's never elevating it to like a better level. Does that make sense? But evil is the absence of God. If somebody says, I reject you, God. I don't want you in my business. Then when God says, I honor your choice, evil begins to happen in that moment, okay? But God couldn't have it both ways. You say, well, that means he's not omnipotent. No, omnipotence does not mean the power to do what is logically impossible. So people love to say, well, could God make a rock that even he couldn't lift? No, because that would mean God was creating something more powerful than himself. If he is, by definition, already the most powerful being in the universe then that's an impossibility, not because of his power, it's because it's logically impossible. And then on the, on, uh, applicable to our argument for right now, God could not create beings that could freely love him and one another without free will. He can't do that. That's a, that's a logical impossibility. He can't create free will beings without the ability to choose love, but not evil, okay? So, I know it's kind of heady and I'd love you to study this out more, but actually what's interesting is this logical question of evil has kind of been solved. Uh, the debate that sort of rages on against the existence of God does not hinge upon this argument anymore because even atheists have said, yeah, actually free will allows premise one, that God is omnipotent and premise two, that God is good and yet evil exists. Those, two thi- or those three things are actually not in competition with each other in light of this that God has actually created the, the maximally good universe that he could, but still having free will. All right, are you with me? Let's move on. Because this is not just a logical question. You know, we got to deal with the logical side of it. But the reality is that for, for you and me, we, for a lot of people, they just say, so what? So what that God could still be all powerful and all good and evil could exist? Like, yeah, it's good to know that. But what about the, the fact that I still hurt? that I still have pain. So what that, and so for a lot of people that are skeptical, they say, yeah, so I don't really accept God because he's not doing anything for me. Like it's not pragmatically better to believe than not to because everything still sucks. That's just plain language right there. It's actually a translated from a Greek word. No, it's not. <laughs> if everything is still broken in a million different ways, so what? If God logically could exist, what does that do for me? And that's where we go to the emotional problem of evil, the problem in the heart. I want to give you three words and express some truth 
from the Christian worldview that deals with, these, with this emotional problem of evil. Three words, understanding, presence, and hope. Understanding, presence, and hope. God understands your suffering and pain. He understands the existence of evil. He is with us in, when we suffer. He's with us in those moments when great evil occurs. And he offers hope. Understanding, presence, and hope. He offers hope for the future to be better and also hope for the present to get you through what you're going through. Let's talk about these. Number one, understanding. The scriptures identify Jesus as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is a groundbreaking concept because no other worldview has a God that de-escalates himself. And Jesus in Philippians 2, it talks about what's called the kenosis, the emptying, that he empties himself and he comes down and he gets in the dirt and he gets us. He's Emmanuel, he's God with us. He comes down and he's not, he's not staying in his elevated lofty position saying, hey, you people down there, hopefully you feel better. No, Jesus comes down, he gets into the mud, he gets into the dirt and he feels suffering both personally, but also abstractly like we do. Like we see suffering and evil in our world. Jesus saw it all. He saw oppression, he saw racism, he saw massacres, he saw rapes, he saw murders, he saw it all. So he gets it because he lived as a man. This is an incredible thing, that God understands our suffering. He gets it. So a person say, well, God doesn't understand my pain. Actually, that's wrong. He does understand your pain very, very well, because Jesus went through everything you went through and more, both personally and also in observation like we do. Number two, presence. God is near to us in our pain. Again, the Christian worldview offers an amazing truth that when you suffer, when you go through pain, for every victim uh, in that shooting in Las Vegas, for everybody around, the families, that God did not run away from that and hide like, oh no, this bad thing's happening, that God is there. It says in Psalms 34, verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. If you have a crushed spirit today, then say, thank you, Jesus, that you're with me because you're close to me. My God is close to me. He doesn't run away from pain. He's right there. God is not hiding from your problems. He's not hiding from the problems in our world. He is there. He is present. He's not turning away. He's right there. And when you are hurting, you need to hold on to that and say, God is here. Yeah. Am I hurting? Absolutely. This world is broken. And when, when, when natural disasters and evil and people do bad things and all this kind of stuff happens, God isn't hiding from it. He's right there. He's present. He says, I understand and I'm here, but there's more. The third word is this, hope. God also offers hope to us that things will be made right. Our faith, the Christian faith is about hope at two levels, now and forever. Right now and forever. Jesus said in his so this is how you pray in the, what's called the Lord's Prayer. He said, let your will be done and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And what he was talking about was the Christian's calling that we are to in every way oppose evil and seek to bring hope and life and healing into this planet before Jesus comes again. Come on, somebody. If you're a, we talked about this in the podcast this week. If your theology as a Christ follower is like, I hope God comes back and roasts everything, and then like we get out and go to like la-la land, that's not Christianity. 
Jesus said, look, pray that God would make earth look like heaven. When you even take the imagery of of the city of God coming down, uh, the new Jerusalem in Revelations, it's it's that God is bringing heaven to earth. There's this, this remaking and this new thing that God wants to do. But we're to work for that, to oppose evil, to comfort the brokenhearted, to go into the world and do good. That's a part of what we're talking about. It's the hope for right now. Right? This place should be a place of hope. When you come in here, it shouldn't be like, I went to church and I feel worse. I went to church and I'm more bummed out because everybody's so judgmental. And they're, you know, No, like you should come in here and be with a bunch of people that love you and understand that we're all broken and that Jesus is making things new, but it's a process. Come on. But that's not it. There's hope for the future. So yeah, we want to see God can do things now, but, but the world is still broken. Evil still exists. So what's going to happen? Well, it says in Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Listen to this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Our hope is now, but it's also forever that Jesus is at work. God is rushing through history, bringing us to this culmination, this moment where he makes everything right and wipes every tear from from every eye. Come on, somebody, where there's no more sorrow or pain. He says, look, and the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And you say, well, what's the answer for evil? Man, it's God. He understands. He's present and he's giving us hope, both here and for the future. But that's not all like an infomercial, but wait, there's more. <laughs> I think it's a good time to ask this question. What about the alternative? We just talked about the fact that out of the Christian worldview, we have a God who's understanding, who's present, and who gives us hope. Well, what about the alternative? In a universe in which there is no God, there is no purpose in pain. It's just time plus slime plus chance. Your life is absurd. You don't mean anything. It doesn't matter when you hurt. You're like, oh, that hurts my feelings. Good. Because that's the kind of universe that that would be, right? There'd be no purpose in pain. There'd be no justice for evil. In a universe in which there's no moral lawgiver, you can't, there's no accountability. So whatever somebody does that's really funky, they're never going to be held accountable for that. And we love other people to be held accountable, don't we? <laughs> Not us, but other people. In a universe without God, there'd be no hope for restoration, So the fact that you intuitively know that this universe is a busted, broken place that needs to be fixed, you might as well give that idea up or just live with it and just deal with it because if there's no God, there's no cavalry coming. Come on. Nobody's coming to fix it. No, the aliens are coming. Sweet. I'm sure they're going to be really nice when they get here. That's what they're going to do. Okay, that's for you, Matt. (laughs) He's scared of aliens. Okay. (laughs) Without God, the problem of evil is still a problem. It's just a problem without an answer. No hope. Let's move on. The third problem of evil is the most problematic of them all. Talked about the logical problem. Talked about the emotional problem. Let's talk about the personal problem of evil. The problem of life, of our hands, of, of what we do. The personal problem is this. It's that the problem of evil isn't just out there, it's in here. Come on. Oh, the world's broken, the world is evil, there's all this death and anger and violence and rage and all this kind of stuff. 
where does it come from? See, the Christian worldview tells us a story not about like good over here as a category and bad over here and like over here's Luke Skywalker and over here's the Sith. That's dualism. She says there's like this equal power, yin and yang of good and bad and light and dark. That's not the picture that Christianity gives us of the universe. The picture that Christianity gives us of the universe is that God made a good creation, a good universe and good people, and they chose evil, chose to say, God, get out of our business, and evil comes in, and evil is a predator. Uh, Come on. Evil is a pollution. It's a perversion. It's a poison at work. It's not an abstract concept. Evil doesn't exist, like, and it's like, I'm evil. It's this big black thing. That's not what it is. Evil is always connected to personhood. Uh Uh-oh, let's bring it home right now. Evil is always connected to a person. And I'll I'll talk about this. I mean, why do we make a distinction between something that is just tragic and something that is evil? How do we make this distinction? If a lion jumps out of a cage and kills someone on purpose, we call it a tragic accident or a tragedy. If you jump out of your house and kill somebody on purpose, we call it murder. Come on. Well, the lion was just acting by instinct. Well, what about the person? Well, no, the person knows better. Okay, so what does that mean? It means they made a choice. It means they had the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. If a lion jumps out, ah, that's a good lion right there. <laughs> you know, bites into somebody. We're like, oh, no, but it's a lion. You're still like, you're cute. We still go to zoos. <laughs> but we don't go to prison to be like, hey, see the murderers? There he is, it's Jeffrey Dahmer, he's crazy. We don't do that. Why? Because we're like, that guy's evil. What are we, what are we realizing? What are we, what are we figuring out here? Let's put, a, let's put a, a name on it. We're realizing that evil is a personal problem because evil's on the inside of you and I. Evil's a problem because it's alive and at work inside of each of us. A lot of people say, oh, well, when Jesus came, he sort of did away with all the law and he brought grace. And grace is so much easier. Wrong. The Old Testament says, do not murder. It's like this clear line, don't murder people. You can want to, you can like thinking about it, but don't do it. (laughs) Jesus comes along and he says, look, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, don't be angry. Because if you're angry, you're actually murdering someone. It's the same thing. It's like the seed or the tree. It's the same thing. Grace. Grace is a more severe standard. To know, in the Old Testament, God just wanted your actions. In the New Testament, God is saying, actually, what I've wanted all along is I wanted your heart. It's not that you could just not kill people. That's a good thing. Like, let's not murder people. Everybody learn your Sunday school lesson. Don't murder. Okay. Okay. But it's more than that. God wants to get a hold of what's going on inside of your heart, that anger, that lust, that rage. God wants to get a hold of that. Whatever caused that guy in Las Vegas to do what he did is actually alive on the inside. We've gone looking for Frankenstein. Let's look for the monster. Let's beat down the door. Let's pull him out and kill him. And we found out it was us. The personal problem of evil. Paul Thousands of years ago, wrote so well in his letter to the church in Rome. In Romans 7, 24, he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In the scripture, death and evil and sin are kind of wrapped together as one concept. And Paul's realizing I'm trapped in the the, the problem is on the inside. 
Romans 7, 24, 25 in the message translation says, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one? Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? He goes on. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. And how many of you would say, this is my experience, that I want to do right. I see right and wrong, but I find myself pulled to do the wrong thing either all the time or most of the time. And that there's this war happening on the inside. And Paul says, who's going to save us? Who's going to come in and say, I can fix that? Who's going to provide an antidote? And he says, thank God, it's Jesus Christ. You and I, if we want to see evil stamped out in this world, if we want to see violent shootings end, if we want to see rape and murder and theft and oppression and racism and all the garbage, we want to get that out of our planet, we have to say, God, get it out of my heart. Because evil will not be stamped out outside until it's stamped out inside by people, men and women, choosing of their own free will to surrender and bow their knee to Jesus and say, I've got a problem and the problem is me. I've got a problem and the problem is me. Oh, the problem is a shooter. Oh, the problem is this person over here uh, putting out pornographic magazines. Oh, the problem is the people, the Democrats, it's the Republicans. No, the problem is us. The problem is you. The problem is me. And if we'll have the humility to recognize that and admit it, then we open ourselves up to the solution. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's answer to the question of evil and suffering. It is both the answer and the antidote. You see, the cross solves the challenge, the logical, the emotional, the personal problem. It solves all of them. The cross demonstrates the high cost of evil that God looked at it. And it's not like evil is just a joke. You know, I think sometimes we want to just get everything thrown out. Oh, and we talk about even salvation, like Jesus forgives me. And, you know, I killed 94 people, raped all these people, stole all these from these people. But Jesus forgives me, so it's all just sort of over and it's la la land. No, like Jesus paid for every one of those sins. Because evil is a real problem and it's really bad. And I think we do a disservice to those that suffer when we act like, oh, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. And the cross says evil is a big deal. What happened in Las Vegas is, re- is disgusting and contemptible, which is why the cross of Jesus had to be even more disgusting and contemptible, that Jesus became sin for us. Because he was demonstrating that evil had to be dealt with and justice had to be served. The cross also demonstrates God's embrace of our brokenness. He's not distant. He didn't look at the problem and say, I'm going to go the other way. He literally stepped into human flesh and did something about it. The cross demonstrates that we are not alone in our pain. He is present. He understands. We serve a God that embraced our suffering. That is the result of our actions and our evil. And he took it on himself. We have a God that both cares and acts because of his great love. It is the cross also that gives us the power to defeat the evil that has taken hold of our heart. At the cross, Jesus dealt with evil out there and in here. You see, so much of our culture is about treating the symptoms, but so much of Christianity, all of it, all of the gospel is about treating the source. See, so much of what we do in culture, what we try to fix, oh, we need to up education and help people's living conditions and do this and that. Those are good ideas. They're identifying that there's a problem, but missing the diagnosis. And the only diagnosis that works is that when the heart is changed, the actions will come and be different. 
And it's the cross that gives us that power to defeat the evil that has taken hold. Jesus dealt with it. Through Jesus, we can overcome evil with good. We can hold on to hope for both the present world and the world to come. It is the cross that is the answer, God's answer to evil and suffering. I want to leave you with this. Isaiah 53 in the Message Translation is a beautiful poetic picture. It's a prophetic picture looking forward to Jesus and what he would be and what he would do. And I'm just going to leave you with this, and I want you to think about that this, this about think about this this week as you consider this problem of evil and suffering and your response. Isaiah 53:1, who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him, people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum, but the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins, he took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on him, on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence, justice miscarried, and he was led off. Did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with the rich man. Even though he never heard a soul or said one word that wasn't true, still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd come, so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of the soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones. As he himself carries the burden of their sins, therefore I will re reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders, the sin of many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. When you look at evil and suffering in the world, look into the eyes of Jesus hanging on the cross because that is God's answer to the problem of evil and suffering.